0: Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother.
1: My name is John McGown. This is the Stick to Wrestling Podcast, a weekly uh classic pro wrestling podcast where if you give us sixty minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. Uh before I get rolling, I want to invite you to join our Facebook group. It's it's called the Stick to Wrestling Group. If you just search for it, ask to get in, you're in. Uh, a lot of good results, questions, answers, photographs, you name it, we got it over there. Free Parking, pizza by the slice you want to be part of this <laughs> <laughs> and before i get rolling again um twitter follow me on twitter just follow the guy with the stick to wrestling logo as his avatar and returning now as the popular uh sometimes co-host is my friend steve generelli steve thank you for coming on
2: Oh, thank you john and uh, this particular episode should be uh, right up my sweet spot and i don't want to give it away but i'm really excited about this one
1: I'm excited too, and we have a third man in the booth, our guest this week returning after about a nine-month hiatus from his uh, maiden voyage on Stick to Wrestling, uh, Dr. Nick Koliadis. Dr. Nick, thank you for coming on.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm looking very much forward to this, and uh, my parents are not wrestling fans, but they listened to the last podcast that I was on, and I'm going to give them another one to
1: listen to, so they're going to be thrilled. Tremendous. Uh, <laughs> Also, I've been talking about having this cold. Listen to this. The cold is more or less gone, but I I still have some, like, congestion, right? So yesterday, after being sick for, like, two weeks, and then before that we had holiday interruptions, I get on my exercise bike for, like, probably the first time in two weeks and probably the the fourth time in, like, four weeks, and I'm gassed at the (laughs) 25-minute mark. (laughs) Nick, I could have used you, man. I needed a doctor. I mean, it's, I think it's less me being out of, or getting out of shape in a month and this damn congestion that I can't get rid of.
0: You and everybody else, man. I mean, it's, I've had that on and off all year long and it's, it's, it's hard to kick out of that, but we all sound good today, I think.
1: Oh, I, I hope so. Twenty-five minutes—that make fun of me on the Facebook group for that. That's pathetic. I did get through it, but twenty-five minutes into it, I was like, "Oh my god, I'm dying." Recently, Peacock released a bunch of championship wrestling, WWF championship wrestling episodes from 1980. I've been wanting to do this for a while. They did this like three weeks ago. We are going to review the February 2nd, 1980 episode. By coincidence, this was a historic episode of championship wrestling with the Famous Bruno Sammartino versus Larry Zbysko match. Dr. Nick, one reason I specifically wanted you on this show. We've got me who lived through it. We've got Steve who lived through this. And with you, I have a fresh set of eyes.
0: One thing that I realized when I go back and I watch a lot of this wrestling that's before my time, even though it is before my time, more often than not, I can see what made these guys great. It's not very difficult to see why Bruno San Martino was as over as he was. And I think the one thing that immediately struck me about him is that I liked him because he reminds me of Bret Hart. And on the surface, hmm. that may sound a little bit strange. Different wrestlers, different eras, different styles, different careers, different legacies. But the one thing they have in common is both guys aren't exactly the smoothest promos in the world. They don't sound like Ric Flair, Jim Cornette, where everything just flows. But what they make up for is they sound genuine. They sound like a real guy in a real fight for something that really matters in a real sport. And that just comes right through the camera. You know, so that was kind of my first uh, impression of Bruno San Martino. He reminds me of Bret Hart. And that's why one of the reasons I
1: like him. As soon as you said that, in some ways he reminds me of Bret Hart as well. And I agree with what you said as far as, you know, they they come across as being uh, genuine. I mean, Steve, do you see that comparison?
2: Um, when he said it, it took me back a little bit, but no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, both were very genuine guys. Uh, both were surrounded by these larger-than-life uh, caricatures and crazy managers and, and people who were really over the top. So when you're dealing with a Bruno or a Bret Hart who is more down-to-earth and laid back, uh, they came across very like a normal person, whereas these other
1: wrestlers were just like wild and uncontrollable. And I look at this, too. Like, think about 90s WWF or early and mid-90s WWF, where everyone had a gimmick except Bret Hart. And Bruno Sammartino was not a gimmick guy at all. Not at all. He wasn't anything like that.
0: And, again, that makes him stand out. And especially someone like me that grew up with the gimmicks. Again, when you watch the stuff from the 70s and the previous era and even the early 80s, it, it just seems more realistic. You know, it just seems like a more realistic presentation, even the the opening to that show, just the the way it's presented where they introduce the promoter, the commissioner, the timekeeper, the referees. It's it's much more of a sports presentation versus maybe the kind of variety show or the, the entertainment show that we see today.
1: We're going to talk about them introducing everybody. I actually have a lot to say about that. The first thing I did want to say though, like Peacock, thank you for, you know, getting these 10 episodes, but could you please make your stuff a little bit easier to find? If you could just have a search feature just in the WWE section, I would appreciate it so much. Uh, Steve, did you find this okay?
2: Yeah, I I just put it in championship in the search and it did bring up lots of matches, but it did bring the championship wrestling logo and uh, yeah, it was easy. It was fairly easy to find
1: after that. All right, Nick. Any any problems for you?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I found it pretty easily, but the format leaves a lot to be desired. I mean, I, I it sounds funny to say, but I'm pining for the days of the network. No, it's <laughs> that not wasn't
1: the, the network was way easier to navigate. And again, I don't want to throw out a problem without a solution. My solution just have a search feature just in WWE, not in Peacock in general. Um, first thing I noticed that they, they did not use the, the original music. No surprise there, but let's hear. Some audio from this episode. We have a lot of good audio. I should have mentioned this earlier. Not only do we have the audio from, or some of the audio from, uh, the February 2nd, 80 show, I've got some audio going back where we tell the story of what happened coming into the Larry Zabisco versus Bruno Sammartino match. But right now, let's hear Vince McMahon introducing this episode. <laughs>
3: Welcome to Championship Wrestling. Vince McMahon here at ringside and scheduled on this week's championship card. We'll be seeing the likes of Tony Atlas. He is really something else. Mr. USA, Tony Atlas. Tony Atlas joining the card this week uh, by the likes of the fabulous Hulk Hogan over most of these same stations. You'll be seeing Big Bob Duckham. Ken Patero, the Olympic strongman, will join us. All this and a whole lot more in addition to the match. Indeed, the fans here jam-packing. This arena, a capacity crowd on hand to see what they anticipate to be one of the greatest matches ever held on television. Larry Zabisco will square off against wrestling's living legend Bruno Sammartino. We shall return with the opening contest as we continue in just a moment.
1: Nick I know you know who Howard Cosell is but you you didn't grow up in an era where everyone knew who Howard Cosell was he was one of the biggest names in sport Steve is it me or is Vince trying so hard to be Howard Cosell yeah
2: and, and he's hitting it out of the park i mean uh, i mean uh, looking back at what we know now with all the other promoters uh, you've seen footage from other promotions I think, I think Vince did a f- phenomenal job making this show seem like it was something special and that this match was going to be something unique. And I mean, he, you know, I'm sure that the uh, uh where they taped this match in Hamburg probably didn't have any more fans than normal, but he made it seem like it was a special event. and was just jam packed. Uh, but it was probably the same amount of fans like they
1: always had there. Steve, I will bet you that coming into the building, I bet those people didn't even know they were going to see Bruno <laughs> San Martino versus Larry Zabisco. I mean, they, they were building the angle up as they went. So if, unless it was from the first hour, um, you know, they, they probably had no idea. Any thoughts on a very young, uh, 43 years ago, Vince McMahon, Nick?
0: Well, here's my thoughts on Vince. It's interesting because when you, when you hear him talking, he doesn't sound like a deer in headlights. He seems like he's got some confidence about him, but it's not the Vince McMahon that we saw even before he became that Mr. McMahon character, you know? Oh, no. He's not quite, not quite there yet in terms of confidence, you know? And, and you can see where he's kind of imitating Howard Cosell. You know, he's kind of got that cadence, but he slips in and out of it. You know, it, it's almost like when you see those early Ric Flair promos and he's still trying to figure it all out. That's kind of what I'm looking at here with Vince he's not quite familiar with who Vince McMahon is
1: supposed to be as of yet. Does that make sense? It, it totally makes sense to me. I mean, Vince McMahon, just five years later, he would be talking with that Vince McMahon voice. Oh, but the- like, you know, now he's just a regular sportscaster. I mean, and Steve, one thing you were around. I mean, you, you started wrestling, watching wrestling right around the same time I did. So you've been a fan for about four years. Is it safe to st- say that the upcoming Bruno Sammartino versus Larry Zbysko match is the biggest TV match we've ever seen.
2: Oh, yeah, it, it would be by far. And uh, it, it just, uh, you know, when John and I started, Bruno was the champion, and he, he very rarely made a TV appearance, maybe an interview here, a rare TV match, but, uh, you know, pretty soon he would lose the title. Billy Graham had a year as champion, and he would be on quite – you know, a lot more than Bruno was. And then Bob Backlund would be on fairly regularly after that. So to see Bruno, who was the legend of the Northeast, make this rare TV match against, was his protege, uh, it just, it just boggled the mind. We we had no clue
1: what was going to happen next. I, I certainly had no clue. All right. I want to play a couple of things that we heard, uh, every single week on championship wrestling. Uh, Lou, if you could play that audio for us.
3: The following rusting exhibition requires
1: discretionary viewer participation. Steve, it took me forever to figure out what exactly that meant. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I guess just don't have like, you know, really violent little kids watching this or something like I knew they wanted to get in the uh the exhibition part as as subtly as they possibly could, because I think there were some states where you had to say that. But I mean, the rest of it, I just didn't get.
2: No, I, I, I didn't get it either. Maybe I still don't get it. But, you know, it just it just at the time wrestling was looked at as such a weird fringe thing. Uh, I mean, it aired on independent stations in the middle of the night or in the early morning. And it, it was just uh it was just another world. I mean, people didn't talk about it. I mean, the. The fans like us that were diehards would buy all the magazines and we we would try to learn every little snippet we could find out. But it was just so foreign and I I almost felt like they felt like they had to give a disclaimer just in case the normal public, you know, watched any of this and they had to know that uh, something was right with the world, I guess.
1: I mean really you know people like to talk about uh wrestling being mainstream in the northeast in 1980 and let me tell you it wasn't I don't care I don't care how many people watched it I don't care how many people went to Madison Square Garden or the Boston Garden it was fringe entertainment and you didn't want the wrong people to know that you watched it Steve
2: Yeah yeah it was really on the on the edge there and uh you know, uh, you know, looking back on it now, maybe that's where it belonged. <laughs> I don't know. It, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, it was good for what it was, but uh, uh you know, it, it, I, I think in the mid-80s, I think wrestling kind of like found a really nice spot in the middle where it, it showed a lot more entertainment, it gave you some good quality matches, you know, the, 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 definitely the work rate in the WWF was a lot better by the mid-80s compared to this period we're talking about, but uh but it's really—it was just fun to revisit this period because it's definitely a transitionary period from the end of the Bruno era to, to the sweet spot of the Backland era.
1: It, it was, and you know, like I said, people loved it, but it was definitely—it was lowbrow entertainment as lowbrow as it got. <laughs> um, <laughs> Now, I'll tell you what, uh, Nick had, had alluded to something that we heard every single week on Championship Wrestling until about 1984. Uh, let's let's hear uh, Joe McHugh run down just about uh, introduce just about everyone in the in the audience. Let's go. You can play that, Lou. <laughs> Our oh,
3: ladies and gentlemen, this is Championship Wrestling, promoted by Phil Zatko. Supervised and controlled by the State Athletic Commission and the officials assigned Deputy Commissioner in charge, John Santoro, the doctor in attendance at the ringside, Dr. George Soharian, the timekeeper at the bell, Mike Nickman, and the referees for this hour of wrestling. Big Worldy, Roman, Dick Tony Altonor,
4: and my name is
1: Joe Bickley. Okay, Nick, you were talking about this earlier. I, I, I had two thoughts on this. Um, I watched this show uh, three times getting ready for this podcast, and I was actually watching it just to watch it and I said, wait a minute, I should have a podcast about this. This is about three weeks ago. My initial reaction when they, when they ran that down, when they spent about two minutes of television time so that everyone knew who Mike Mittman was, I was, I was <laughs> like, look, I mean, I know the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission required them to do that, but if I'm Vince McMahon senior, I'm, I tell those guys, look, I have a television show to run. Without this in the middle of it or at the beginning of it, whatever. And Delaware's right there. New Jersey's right over there. Maryland's right there. New York's here and there are more states north of that. I will move this program someplace where we don't have to do this every week, right? That's what I said the first time. Then today when I watched it again, I'm like, wait a minute. This makes it all sound very authentic in some sort of weird way like it did with you, Nick. That's the impression I got. <laughs> and then
0: the, other, the other thing I noticed was the fight doctor. Doctor, you know, I'm listening to all this, of here. Dr. George Zahorian. My first thought is, uh-oh, <laughs> we, we know what happens there. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, you know, the other thing I love is the old-school microphone dropping from the ceiling.
5: Yes. Just,
0: there's something about that. I, I'm also a big fight fan. So, actually, I'm, I'm very familiar with Howard Cosell because I've seen a, all the old Muhammad Ali fights and all that. And just the microphone dropping from the ceiling for some reason for me that just immediately gives it that old fight feel and I, I actually like that I like the vibe. Yeah, no, I feel uh, like wrestling uh, nowadays is too produced. It's too overproduced in
1: my yeah. Opinion. I I agree with you and this it, it, to me it gave it kind of a, a upon the second watching I'm like no this gives it uh, a gritty old school feel. Leave it in there, Steve. I mean your thoughts about what we went through every week. I personally I remember liking it at the time.
2: Well, I, I was watching it uh when you told me what the theme of this episode would be, and I think Scott Cornish deserves some kind of lifetime achievement award uh when he did the Joe McHugh impersonation on the 605. I mean, he was so dead on. I mean, uh, Joe McHugh, I mean, he's really over the top with his uh, pronunciation. He, he kind of sounds like Dr. Smith from Lost in Space a little bit, but uh it, it's uh, quite different than what we're used to with Howard Finkel and some of the other ones.
1: Dr. Smith from Lost in Space, I haven't (laughs) thought of that show in forever, even when I was a little kid, I did not like that show. Now, before, and believe me, this is not going to be all audio, but, and by the way, anytime we play audio, it is for review and educational purposes only, as some of you may know. Let's start off with the first match. It's Ken Patera against uh, Stone of Massachusetts, own Fred Marzino, but in my opinion, Joe McGew pulls a little bit of a gaff here. Can we, look if we could play that audio?
6: Land
3: Oregon, weighing 260 pounds. Ladies and gentlemen, here is one of the
1: strongest men in the world, Ken Batella. Perhaps indeed I am too critical and too analytical, but the heel 101 in me says if I'm Ken Patera, I immediately grab that mic and say, not one of the strongest men. Steve, am I right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And,
2: uh, I, I noticed in that match too, they were doing the little, uh, play, interplay between the wizard and the uh, Patera. And, uh, it wasn't as good as the interplay a wizard had with superstar Billy Graham where he was. Having so much difficulty ripping off the shirt, but uh, they had little uh, interesting chemistry with each other. We have an incoming call here. <laughs> <to wrestling. laughs> the fans demanded it.
0: I'm back in action. Can you guys hear me?
1: Yes, I can, we can hear you just fine. All right, okay, you know what? Let's I have leave no that. That was too there. funny. All right, so. I, Nick, you had some comments about Grand Wizard and and Ken Patera their their uh, interaction, shall we say, coming in. What, what were your thoughts on that?
0: I absolutely love this because whether the fans know it or not, they're part of the whole little heat cycle they do here. You know, um, Grand Wizard starts taking off Patera's jacket, nice and slowly, folding it all carefully. You hear the audience catcalling. Patera starts getting pissed. He starts jaw jacking with the fans. The cat calling gets louder. What does Ernie Roth do? He gets down on one knee, starts slowly taking the warm up pants off. The cat calling gets louder. Patera gets even more pissed. And so it's just this this whole little heat cycle they do at the beginning of the match just to get the crowd into it. And again, whether the crowd knows it or not, they're part of the whole machine. I thought it was very interesting and I think that's something that's lost in wrestling today. Just these Little subtle things that you can do just to, to get the audience to, to get pissed off at you. And again, you can you not know anything about Ken Patera. You could have never seen the Grand Wizard. And immediately you know, okay, these guys are the heels. <laughs>
1: I and just so everyone knows, Ken Patera beckoned a grand wizard to get down on one knee and to remove his warm-up pants. And this episode was actually kind of more subtle than some of the other ones. I mean, Steve, there was there were times where I was afraid Ken Patera was going to put that poor man's eye out.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, one, th- one thing that was very interesting to watch was the fans at ringside. I mean. Uh, lots of, uh like, uh husbands and wives who look like they've been married for 25, 30 years. Yes! Uh, it looked like they, you know, a lot of middle-aged folks, the older folks. uh It looked like, uh, you know, maybe they uh, had a bowling night the night before, and they came to wrestling this night, and they're probably going to go play pool the next night. You never know what they're going to do. But uh it's definitely a different audience than, say, AEW today, where it's like 50,000 young guys about all age 40, and there's a bunch of guys, you know. with in wrestling, back in the old days, it was families and older people. It was kind of interesting.
1: It, it, that is so true. And I looked at that at the audience, and I'm just like, you know, okay, wow. The really young people in there are now grandparents, and anyone who's middle age, I mean, they're they're probably not with us anymore. <laughs> That's true. Very true. While we're talking about the uh, the Grand Wizard and Ken Patera, let's let's get Vince McMahon's reaction to what's going on with these two. You know, sometimes you have to wonder a little bit
3: about, about the uh, personal relationship of the Grand Wizard and Ken Patera.
1: Anytime Vince said something like that, it cracked me up. I mean, <laughs> you know what he's insinuating.
2: Right, yeah,
1: I know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's too much. All right, so yeah, we have Ken Patera against Fred Marzino. Ken Patera had recently returned to the WWF. He'd been around for about six weeks. He left in 1978 and came back at the very end of 1979. He actually came back with his natural short brown hair, and the first thing he does when he gets on the road with the WWF is he bleaches it blonde like a heel should. Uh, any thoughts on this match, Ken Patera versus Fred Marzino, Nick? I mean, this. They don't have squash matches anymore. They haven't for a long time.
0: No, and I think squash matches are important because that's how you build up a big monster like a Ken Patera. Just a big, nasty, powerhouse monster that doesn't care if he injures his opponent or, in this case, seems to enjoy it. And what I thought was interesting is I kind of watched this match and I thought, okay, nowadays, how would you get someone like that over Probably a press slam over the head, over the top rope, through the announcers table. <laughs> you have to do so much less here. I mean, look at what he does at the end of the match. He puts him in a full Nelson, picks him up off the ground, and just spins in a circle with them. I've done that to my little brother in the living room. He was fine. But they sell it. They sell every bit of it. Freddie Marzino sells it. The Grand Wizard sells it. My favorite part of this match, my favorite part of this match is the very, very end of Watch the Grand Rizard's reaction right as the stretcher comes out. It's priceless. Cause he points at it, he gives a big belly laugh, and he just starts clapping his hand. Like that made his day.
1: Now, as we all know, Dr. Nick is a medical professional. Dr. Nick, what are your thoughts about just two referees, not even licensed medical person, licensed medical personnel, just like tossing this guy onto the stretcher the way I toss things into the trash? <laughs> yeah uh, with a neck injury
0: credentials i don't know about that
1: uh, <laughs> the but other I other that
0: 34 loop was later on when you see and we'll get to this later on is when they're cleaning up the san martino where they're cleaning up the blood i'm looking it's like these guys aren't even wearing gloves and you remember <laughs> this is 1980
1: right. exactly i i have something more to say on that is as, as this uh fine podcast rolls on steve i mean we grew up on squash matches it's it's all we knew about pro wrestling you know the good matches you got to pay to see them the tv is basically a, a showcase for stars like ken patera but to me if i'm fred marzino and i wrestle ken patera and i get no offense in and this guy stretches me out, you know, injures my neck so bad. I am, I, I'm just like, this is not the profession for me. I'm sending out my resume this week.
2: Well, uh, uh recently uh, Mario Mancini, who became a really big uh, jobber for WWF in the mid eighties, he's done a whole bunch of shoot interviews and he's, he's extremely enthusiastic about his time in the WWF. I guess he did, you know, jobbing on TV for like six years and, and, and he really embraced it. I mean, he, he, he was so naive. He thought wrestling was a shoot the first time he came in the TV tapings. He thought he could take Greg Valentine. He didn't know that you know, wrestling was a work. So uh, I guess a guy like Marzino, you know, depends on how smart he was. You know, you're there to do a job. You're there to put Patera over and help Patera get to the main event. And, uh, yeah, I, I miss the squash matches. I really do.
1: I mean that that's funny. I've never seen I I never even was aware that Mario Mancini had shoot interviews. I will seek those out, but that to me that's hilarious. I've never wrestled before, but I think I can I think I, could, I can beat Greg Valentine.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, he he uh he would have got his ass whipped for sure from by Greg Valentine. But uh but but you know, you know, I'm sure most of our listeners are probably fans of like 90s wrestling and and I will say this when wrestling got to be so, so big at the peak with Stone Cold and, in The Rock, uh, those guys were very, very smart. You know, we're talking about Patera with the swinging full Nelson. They went back to these classic finishing moves. I mean, the people's elbow was just an elbow. You had the current angle with the angle lock. They didn't, they didn't have to find these like, you know, let's go through 20 tables like Nick was referring to. Make it simple, make it relatable. And the fans, you know, they ate it up. And And this is what Patera's doing in this match is very relatable, very believable.
1: I mean, you know, if you have two guys with reasonably the, the same amount of strength, the full Nelson is going to be the end of any street fight. And I used to go back and forth with Fred Marzino by, by email. You no, know, not certainly not a shoot interview, but he says he embraced his role as a, a jobber. I don't mean that disrespectfully. And, you know, he said that sometimes Vince McMahon Jr. would yell at him because Fred liked to take big bumps. And it's like, hey, Fred, you're not here to take big bumps. You're just here to put the, the, the the stars over don't make it about yourself but fred couldn't help himself sometimes
2: no this was a good match this was a good jobber match and uh he had a decent build i mean he looked like an athlete and uh patera just manhandled him he just he just ate him up alive
1: Yeah, and Ken Batera had already wrestled Bob Backlund at Madison Square Garden once. They have a rematch coming up at Madison Square Garden. Once again, for review purposes only, let's hear a little bit about that upcoming uh, Madison Square Garden show with Bob Backlund defending against Ken Batera in a rematch. But we have a special guest referee, the newly turned Pat Patterson. Lou, if we can get that audio.
3: Championship Wrestling returns to Madison Square Garden on the 18th of February, scheduled to compete on the Pro Wrestling Spectacular. Everyone looking forward to the return of the mighty midget wrestlers competing in the special tag team match. We'll also see Tony Atlas, a man who really made an impression for himself in his first appearance in Madison Square Garden, lock up with Iran's great Hussein. Tito Santana will square off against the fabulous Hulk Hogan. Lou Albano sends its Samoans into individual competition. Afa meeting Rene Goulet. Sika squaring off against the Polish power, Ivan Putski. In addition to that, ladies and gentlemen, and a whole lot more unquestionably, we're looking forward to the main event. The World Wrestling Federation title once again up for grabs on the 18th of February in the return match. Ken Patera will perhaps justifiably get another opportunity to wrestle Bob Backlund for the title in the return match. However, there will be a special guest referee. That guest referee assigned, Pat Patterson. So here to discuss the main event with us now, the Intercontinental title holder himself, Pat Patterson, the guest referee. And Mr. Patterson, it seems to me that uh, you're in a not-so-enviable position here in Madison Square Garden because uh, as many times as we'll have it, the official is, uh, well, it's kind of a thankless job. You're in there, and you're going to be knocked around, perhaps, as the last referee was.
4: Well, there's no doubt about it. It's going to be a tough job. First of all, I'd like to say this. You know, I've had my battles with Bob Backlund, And I must say one thing that I must respect the man because he gave me some of the toughest match I ever had in my wrestling career. So he's truly a real champion. Now talking about Ken Patera. Now Ken Patera is also a great wrestler and one of the strongest men in the world today. Now I saw the last match they had the last time in the Madison Square Garden. Now I'll tell you, I kind of hate to say this, but uh, if the referee would have been knocked down, uh, Ken Patera would be the new world's champion so because the referee got knocked out of the ring the match was called a draw the referee got carried out in the stretcher now I was asked to be the referee well I'll be the referee on this match and the way I'm gonna look at this match Vince is I'm gonna look at it as a as a wrestler's point of view now these guys they want to go at it like two dogs they can do it if they want but I promise you one thing I'll be standing up at the end of the match and I'll give the belt to the men that becomes the winner And that man will be the world's champion, of course. And I'll guarantee you, as far as I'm concerned, it's going to be one of the toughest matches I've ever seen. And I'm glad I'm going to be the referee to see it.
3: So indeed, you are going to what? Be objective in this situation? Or are you going to be a bit partial toward Ken Patera, toward Bob Backlund? How does Pat Patterson see it?
4: Vince, I'm not going to be partial to anyone. I'm going there to do a job to be a referee. And like I said before, the best man is going to win this match. I'm not going to favor nobody. I know, like I said before, I've had my battles with Backman, but it's all down the drain now. That was yesterday. Now it's a new day. I'm going there to do my job as a referee, and the best man is going to win.
3: Thank you very much. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, from the Intercontinental title holder, indeed the guest referee, Pat Patterson in the main event.
1: All right, that wasn't from the network, that was or from Peacock, that was from my personal stash, as they say. Steve, I mean, it's the WWF 1980, at the very, I believe it was the very end of 1979, or maybe even the beginning of 1980, Pat Patterson had turned babyface, we're talking maximum four or five weeks ago, and now he's on TV, and he's a completely different person.
2: Yeah, yeah, he had been... uh he had been a hated uh, villain in the WWF, but then, as, as John would attest to, at uh, the beginning of one of the episodes uh, with Vincent Bruno running down this week's wrestling show, Pat Patterson comes out and he says that uh, that fat slob uh, Lou Albano acquired his contract, and just by uh, downgrading Lou Albano and insulting him, he became an instant babyface. People adored him. Uh, you know, it's like he set the captives free, and uh, and that's how quickly things changed back then.
1: Yeah, and, you know, and let's get to the next match. Pat Patterson against Jose Estrada. I mean, as we mentioned, Patterson had just turned and the fans had forgotten all of the horrible things he had just <laughs> done just months ago. He had... He had Used brass knuckles to knock out Ted DiBiase and steal the then North American championship. Then he goes to Madison Square Garden, uses the same brass knucks to try to steal the WWF championship from Bob Backlund. And, it, it you know, And but now, hey, we all love this guy.
2: Yeah, they had some great, great matches at MSG that the people still talk about the patterson versus Backlund for match set at the garden which had never been done before i don't believe four matches nope. so it was just phenomenal and and it is is john would testify from the Backlund book uh i mean that ba- backland himself said that patterson taught him so much in the cage match you know Backlund didn't didn't understand that you could rub the fans up and you know take them to a bowling point and then really tell a story in the ring so uh between guys like Patera that he worked with and Patterson that he worked with, uh, 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 Backlund was becoming a really good uh, worker in the ring and really starting to understand what he needed to do to tell stories in the ring.
1: No, I agree. And by the way, this uh, we're about to hear Bob Backlund speaking about the upcoming match against Ken Patera at Madison Square Garden. They had three excellent, excellent matches during the year of 1980. This would be the second of the three. The matches are out there. I recommend that any old-school wrestling fan, seek those out if you have not seen them already. Well, let's hear what Bob Backlund has to say about his upcoming defense against Ken Patera with the newly turned Pat Patterson as guest referee.
3: Now, let's bring on the champion. Let's bring on the World Wrestling Federation title holder, Bob Backlund. And Mr. Backlund, you unquestionably will look forward, I suspect, to once again meeting Ken Patera in Madison Square Garden. The last match called a draw.
5: Yes, I am. I'm really looking forward to, you know, that the last match was a tough one, and I have a lot of respect for him. He's uh, a great wrestler, and it got a little out of hand. The referee got knocked down, and uh, the the wrestlers had to
3: come down. If I may interrupt you just right there. The referee was knocked down. Ken Patera, either rightly or wrongly, claims that uh, you, Bob Backlund, intentionally knocked the referee down. Backlund, Uh, you, intentionally, to save your title, knocked the referee down.
5: That's not true, Vince McMahon. Uh, I think we can get the films out and show that it was Ken Patera that threw me into the... I did hit the referee, I admit that. And I did knock him down. But it was Ken Patera throwing me into the referee that did knock him down. I did. I did knock the referee down. Now with Pat Patterson and his guest referee, that that's certainly not going to happen. Things. That's not going to happen. Pat Patterson is a tough man. It's one of the toughest people that I've ever been in the ring with, and I've wrestled him a lot of times right here in Madison Square Garden. And he's a hard man to knock down. He's not going to get knocked down. There's going to be a definite winner in this match. I don't have no love for Pat Patterson. He says he's going to call it the way he sees it, right down the line. and He's going to call it like a ref, like a wrestler would want a ref to call it. Well, that's fine with me if he's going to do that, because we're going to find out who the better man is, and I know Pat Patterson's going to be on his feet to raise the winner's hand, and I pray to God it's me. Thank you very much.
1: Okay, once again, all audio used on Stick to Wrestling is for review purposes only, and that one's not on the network. That's from my personal stash, as they say. I really liked the fact that Bob Backlund, just as I have no love for Pat Patterson. He would at some point, but, you know, Bob Patterson gave Backlund a pretty rough summer of 1979. Nick, the interviews have been so different in wrestling, uh, certainly over the past at least 35 years, than they were in 1980. Give us your thoughts on, like, the old school, you know, Patterson is the referee and Bob Backlund, the, the old school presentation, if you will, of the interviews.
0: Well, one thing that I noticed right off the bat, and I noticed this with Jerry Lawler in Memphis. I noticed this with Bob Backlund here. Um I noticed it with uh there was an Ollie Anderson promo I was watching from a little while back. They're very good at getting a lot of exposition in there.
2: You know what I mean? <laughs>
0: Without making it too obvious. You can know absolutely nothing about what's going on and then you can hear one of these promos and they kinda give you the who, the what, the where, the when and the why. It's not just a bunch of catchphrases. It's not just um you know, a bunch of insults, a bunch of cool, you know, lines to kind of pop a crowd. They're actually giving you a lot of exposition, and they're explaining to you what's going on. So you can you can follow along with the storyline. I think they're, they serve that function much better. Backlund's not the most colorful guy in the world. But again, you know, you present him as he's a legitimately good wrestler that's very difficult to beat and take the title off of. You know, you go with his strengths here. So he may not be the most exciting guy to listen to, but you believe him.
1: Steve, I mean, you you get it. You grew, you know, you're pretty much the same age as me. We have a lot of common interests. I've, I've said this on the show before. Bob Backlund gives a, an interview that that's very similar to one that you would get from a Bobby Orr or a Tom Seaver or someone like that.
2: Yeah, he was very sincere, and uh, you know, he, he you you believed him that he was the champion. You believed he was the best thing going at that very time because he was obviously young in his prime uh you know when we watch bruno later on in this show bruno's kind of like johnny unitas he's he's like the old pro coming off the, the bench for one last hurrah so to speak uh, but but backland is definitely the number one guy in the promotion at this point and uh you know I, I, his interviews you know definitely not interview of the year material but very sincere very uh realistic and believable
1: yeah, Bob would, Bob's uh, interviews deteriorated, in my opinion, as the 80s marched on, or at least into the mid-80s. But r- here, I think he's doing a, a really good job. He comes across a, as a, a real athlete. Now, to the next match, Pat Patterson versus Jose Estrada. Uh, once again, we're, you know, Patterson had just turned, but the fans embrace him. I thought this was a really good match, and Jose Estrada takes this crazy bump over the top rope. Nick, what were your thoughts on Patterson and Jose Estrada?
0: Well, again, and I said this last time I was on, I think a great litmus test for a match is that you should be able just to hit the mute on the commentary, not know anything going in, and you can immediately tell who the face is, and you can immediately tell who the heel is, and... Estrada was just a complete dirtbag. <laughs> he just jumps Patterson <laughs> right off the bat before he even has a chance to get the jacket off. He's aggressive. He's vicious on offense. But, man, the minute Patterson's had it off, slams down the jacket, all of a sudden Estrada loses all of his courage and starts backing off in the corner. So you can immediately tell who the face is. You can immediately tell who the heel is. The other thing I like is Patterson's not a, a candy-ass white meat baby face here by any means. He gets a little bit nasty as well. He rakes the eyes. You know, he gets a little bit nasty, but hey, Estrada started it.
1: That's a good way of looking at it. You know, I mean, we, anyone who watches WWF, I mean, I don't mean to overemphasize this, but Pat Patterson was just a bad guy, and he didn't forget about his bad guy tactics. I mean, Steve, what, you know, we're, we're getting off the, the episode, but I mean, you talked a little bit about your thoughts on, on Pat Patterson turning, uh, just a few weeks earlier. It, Lou Albano's not on this show, but it, it speaks volumes about, frankly, how much everyone hated Lou Albano. Oh, this guy's Albano's enemy now. Well, we're on his side.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I, I've heard you, John, on, on another podcast mentioned, uh, Lou Albano was essentially the de facto number one heel of the WWF, kind of like how Bobby Heenan was like the number one heel of the WWF during the Hogan era, as he'd have a number one challenger always against Hogan. Well, uh, in, in, in these That's olden days. That's a really days, good
1: comparison.
2: Yeah, in these olden days, whether it was Backlund as champion or Bruno as champion, uh, Albano was always the most hated uh, of the three uh, men managers. And, uh, people just hated Lou Albano. I mean, he just, he took advantage of the job guys. Yeah, you know, he'd always kick them when they were down. And, uh, he just was the roughest on the interviews. Uh, you know, Blassie had a little charm. Uh, you know, in the wizard, uh, people were probably felt sorry for him because he was so small and puny, but Albano, just everybody hated him. So, uh, he was the number one heel of the WWF back then.
1: He sure was. I mean, I think people had some sort. Of appreciation for Wizard as being kind of a class act and and Blassie being a former wrestler, which Albano was, too. But they just didn't emphasize it. And Lord knows he wasn't the star Blassie was. But, yeah, I mean, to me, Albano stood out from the pack. Any thoughts on, on this particular match, Steve? I thought for a WWF 1980 match, this was a really good match.
2: Yeah, I mean, they're both good workers and I, I agree with you, John, that that spot that Estrada did was, was incredible. Just, uh, you know, just a, like a vertical leap outside the ring. You didn't see that kind of a bump uh, quite often on a WWF show. No. Uh, it was a good, it was a good uh, win for Patterson. And, uh, you know, we just, just, just like we were talking about with Patera, you have to put over the good guys too. Uh, you have to elevate to both the, uh, the heels and the baby faces. So it was a good win for fan favorite Pat Patterson.
1: Now, let's go to the next match. Hulk Hogan against Angelo Gomez. Now, Hulk Hogan is new to the wrestling business. When he first came in November 1979, I had never seen or heard about him. I later learned that he had a run, a short run on Georgia television earlier in 1979. And I, I know he wrestled in Memphis and in, in Alabama, but you know, I had never seen the guy before. No pictures in the magazine. And you know, he's new to the business. He's new to the WWF and he is huge. Uh, your thoughts on 1980 Hulk Hogan, definitely different than the NWA Hulk, uh, NWO Hulk Hogan, Nick.
0: I would definitely say so. I would definitely say so. And here's what's interesting is look at the juxtaposition of these matches. The match before this, we saw Pat Patterson. And Pat Patterson more or less looks like your typical 1970s wrestler, right? A little bit bigger than your average guy, but doesn't look like a bodybuilder that spends half his life in the gym and the other half in the tanning bed. But then now we see Hulk Hogan, and this is a completely different look. And it's kind of a harbinger of things to come because as the 80s wear on, you know, you start seeing the Road Warriors, Lex Luger, Sting, Sid, the Ultimate Warrior, you know, Rick Root. You start seeing these comic book physiques, these guys that, if you've never seen Five Seconds of Wrestling, but you saw them in an airport, you'd immediately know, okay, this guy's a professional wrestler. Whereas the guys from the 70s tended to look more like Pat Patterson, Gene Anderson. Dan Hansen. You know, you had your standouts, you had your superstar Billy Grahams and your Tony Atlas's. But by and large, I think what we're seeing here is your typical nineteen seventies wrestler and then your typical nineteen eighties wrestler.
1: You know, Nick, we see him later in the episode, but I had a an experience I want to say it was it was either seventy eight or seventy-nine when I lived in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. And I'm just walking by a gas station. I kind of look out of the corner of my eye, I'm like, wow. That guy's kind of short, but man, he's huge. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. That's Steve King. It's like, you know, it took me, it took me a a minute for it to, you know, cause he looked like just another big guy, Steve.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The the job guys were deceptively uh, big, I guess. I mean, they might look small on TV, but if you saw them in person, they certainly looked different. And, uh, this guy wrestling against Hogan, uh, he had a great, great build on him, but, uh, Hogan just completely manhandled him like a rag doll. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, a name that we don't talk about too often on Stick to Wrestling, uh, Colonel Buck Robley, he said that New York wrestling, you didn't have any wrestling. You just had large people going up against each other and, and tossing each other around. And this match is kind of a good example of that. I mean, Hogan isn't so much wrestling. I mean, it's just like he's just completely manhandling this guy.
1: Oh, Hogan completely ragdolled Angelo Gomez, and at the end of the match, his finisher was the over-the-shoulder backbreaker. And Hogan is using one his left arm to hold the guy <laughs> up, and his right arm to pose. It was too much. Uh, steve I, did, I would never have guessed Hulk Hogan was going to turn into what he turned into i don't think anyone was going to guess that, but I mean uh, you know at this point i'm I'm looking at Hulk Hogan and i 'm like, man, he is going to be a a big star in the wrestling business, of course is a bad guy, but i'm I'm picturing okay what's his next move after he goes from the w w f
2: it, it's just so funny to hear these interviews now when you you talk to guys in other territories that they didn't realize. I mean, you and I were we were just fans, but we knew he was going to be something special. But a lot of the guys within the business, like the Ole Andersons and some other people, Greg Gagne had said it. They they thought that he was just this, this large guy that you know didn't have any talent. But you know, once once he learned everything, I mean, he learned a lot in Florida from Hiro Matsuda. But one, you know, Vern helped him learn a lot. He learned in WWF, and, and by the time he came back uh, in lots of Japan tours. By the time he came back, he was very well-seasoned when he became champion. And, you know, he had a great career. I mean, um, you know, yeah, neither one of us knew he was going to be champion. But, you know, he did have that special something. We just couldn't put our finger on it.
1: You know, I don't mean to go off on the whole – Oli Anderson, Hulk Hogan thing, but I I will very briefly. Oli Anderson says, well, I had Hulk Hogan in Georgia in 1979. He was the shits, and I sent him home. It's like, okay, Oli, but you burned all of that television time on Hulk Hogan. Why didn't you just take a look at him and send him home after one week? No, he was on TV for like two months. Sorry, Oli, your claim does not stand up to any scrutiny.
2: I think in, in those days, yeah, you know, being a six foot seven like Hogan was, they just thought that those guys were super heavyweights. You know, you have, you have Hogan, you have Blackjack Mulligan, you have Ernie Ladd, you have Andre and maybe one or two other guys like that. You know, they were almost considered their, in their own kind of special area. And the way Vince, the old, older Vince promoted these guys, they would wrestle in the semifinals. They really wouldn't be considered as world heavyweight title contenders. But, you know, with, with Vince Jr.'s vision or Vince of Kennedy's vision of the future of wrestling, yeah, these guys like Hogan could be world champion and they could be uh, superheroes to uh, children and fans all over the world.
1: Uh, I, I just can't help myself. I mean, there are people who are like, no, no, you you needed to know how to work. If you wanted to wrestle Georgia, you had to go around the horn yeah Blackjack Lanza was the Georgia heavyweight champion in 1979. <laughs> Tell me more about how everyone needs to be a great worker. Uh, Nick, any other thoughts on the 1980 uh, I mean this really is the the uh, Hulk Hogan in his like earliest earliest stages he just got the name
0: Well you know what? it's another what's another interesting trend that you see look at the previous match. Pat Patterson wins with a sunset flip. Mm -hmm. Now, I grew up with a sunset flip being completely defanged. I I can't remember seeing anybody win with that with the wrestling I used to watch. You know, it's almost like when you see a guy in a movie, like the action hero gets shot in the chest. You're like, come on. Fast forward to where he unbuttons the shirt. and We know he's got the Kevlar vest and (laughs) we know he's not dead. You know, you know that sunset flip, you see that. It's like, okay, one, two, he's kicking out. But no, you know, I'm watching that previous match and it kind of threw me for a loop. Like, oh, that's right. That's a three count back then. That can end a match. You know? Whereas you look at the Hulk Hogan match, what does he win with? He wins with that over the shoulder, you know, backbreaker. Looks almost like a modified torture rack type maneuver. That's very much a a 1980s finishing movers maneuver. So you kind of see the evolution of the business kind of just with these two matches.
1: One thing I've always been so big on, and this, this goes for every style of wrestling, whether we're talking 2023 WWF or, you know, nineties all Japan, whatever you got, every match should have the feeling like it could be over at any second. You don't have to have this great big build up for every match, every main event match that this sequence that leads to the end of the match. Like, you know, that finish, as Nick said, just kind of came out of nowhere, Steve.
2: Yeah, it, it was just very impromptu, and and to pick up on what Nick was saying about the Hogan backbreaker, uh, I don't even know if Nick would know this, but um, in the um, in the earlier days of Bruno San Martino in his first reign as champion, a version of that backbreaker was actually Bruno's main finisher, the kind of over-the-top backbreaker like that, and I think he, that's what he actually beat Buddy Rogers with, was that yes. same type of a hold, so it's exactly what nick was saying these things kind of go and they come back and then they start up again and 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 i i feel exactly like him too i i i long for the day to see somebody win a match with a sunset flip i mean it's been way too long since we've seen that
1: i i think that would i absolutely i say this with a straight face think that would work on an episode of raw or aew and now Nick, I, I hope you and and people who are, are a little bit younger than I am will appreciate this. Uh, this is, once again, from my own stash and for review purposes only. This part isn't on Peacock. But we have the beginnings of the Larry Zbysko versus Bruno Sammartino situation. Now, Larry Zbysko had... Been two weeks earlier had Bruno wanted to talk to him and Larry just kind of brushed by him. Bruno thought, oh, Larry didn't see me, didn't hear me, whatever. The next week, Larry Zabisco just refuses to do an interview. And once again, we're kind of covering for him. Uh, Larry might have had just wrestled. He might have gotten hurt. He might have been winded, but now Larry Zabisco is, is ready to talk. He's got something on his mind. Uh, let's hear from Larry Zabisco once again for review purposes.
3: If we may, Larry, if we could have a word with you, please. We certainly would appreciate it. If you step forward just a bit, we'd appreciate it. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, you were scheduled to wrestle, indeed were victorious, and uh, Bruno Sammartino came out for an interview. It was a last-minute decision on the part of the producers, and I'm sure that uh, uh, you didn't get the word that uh, that Bruno wanted to do the interview. However, last week, indeed, the producers asked you if you would grant an interview. though, Bruno, you uh, you really you turned and walked away, and there were some... Uh, Uh, contention that you were injured during the match or your throat or what have you and that was the reason why you didn't want to grant the interview but if you would clear up uh, the controversy uh, we'd appreciate it
6: you know Vince there's a lot of things I have to clear up Uh, it took me a long time to clear it up to myself in my own head in my own space in this world and uh, professional wrestling I want everybody to know this professional wrestling is my life Uh, All I do in the morning is work out and run and train. In the afternoon I travel from town to town and at night I fight. And that is my life. And for the last couple of years, after just training to wrestle since I was 13 years old, I found myself being stifled and being held in a career that I chose for my livelihood, for the rest of my life. I want to be a professional wrestler, and I want to be the best. And the only way to do that in professional wrestling is to get ahead, is to get main events, is to meet top challengers, is to have recognition. I was trained by Bruno Sammartino, and he taught me almost everything I know. And it was very hard for me not to talk to Bruno. But I couldn't get myself to talk to the man, and I'm gonna tell everybody why. And I wanna make this clear to everybody. I do not hate Bruno. I do not disrespect Bruno. But I have to become Larry Zabisco to survive in my chosen field, in my career. For years now, I've been walking down the street and I've been recognized as, hey, you're the one that Bruno trained, aren't you? And I've been walking down the streets for years, and people have been coming up to me and say, Hey, there's Bruno's protege. And I've been getting this all over the world, not just where I live. I've even been getting it from some members of my family that introduced me. This is my nephew, the wrestler. Uh, Bruno trained him. Not even my name. And I cannot survive anymore as a professional wrestler. And this is my life. It's been very hard, and I've been very depressed, and after I went overseas to Japan, I took four months off the whole summer, and didn't wrestle anywhere, because I had to think, why was I depressed, and why was I down? And I couldn't get myself to realize that the man who helped me so much is now standing in my way. I cannot become Larry Zabisco the veteran, while I'll exist, in Bruno San Martino's shadow. I don't know what to say, but I have to say what is good for me. And that is, I have to prove myself and I deserve a chance. I've asked Bruno for many favors in the past and I have to ask him for one more. I want to wrestle Bruno San Martino and prove myself to the world, to the fans, and to the promoters who won't Give me the recognition, I'm due. I have to prove that I am better. It's my life now, and I can't get anywhere. I appreciate that, and I'm sure everyone could appreciate
3: how you would want to prove yourself on an individual basis. Where, if you have the opportunity, would you like to meet Bruno Sammartino?
6: Not only would I like to meet Bruno, but, I, I am demanding to meet Bruno. I am issuing a challenge to Bruno, strictly scientific, strictly scientific. I wanna repeat, I don't hate Bruno. I never will hate Bruno. But this is something I have to do for my life. And whether you people can understand that and support that, that's your concern. My concern is me. Like everybody's concern must be their own Because nobody makes you happy but you People can help you But you have to make yourself happy Bruno helped me when I started But he doesn't help me in the ring now when I fight I have to do that now And I can't continue my career I can't get good matches I can't make my career the career Bruno had Because I am a shadow I am not Larry Zabisco, the ring veteran I have to be me in this
3: So then you're hoping that uh, you can prove yourself on an individual basis in meeting Bruno Sammartino uh, on television or in Madison Square Garden
6: or where? I want to do it on television, Vince. I thought about it. I'm I'm not after this for money. I don't want Bruno for money. I don't want money. I want self-satisfaction for myself. I want recognition for what I can do, for what I've trained for, for what Bruno helped me train for. I don't want money. I want it on TV. I want everybody to see it. Because this is the only way I can prove myself and get myself out of my rut.
3: We thank you very much for your time.
6: Thank you. Larry
3: Zabisco, ladies and gentlemen, with his analysis of, uh, of things as of late. We shall return. with
1: Okay, Nick, I bet that is the first time you heard that interview and I want to get your thoughts on it a little background, Larry Zbyszko had just turned 28 he had left the WWF uh, April 1979 after wrestling there since the very end of 1976 he went on a Japan tour and I checked, he legitimately took the summer off, he came back to the WWF October 1979, still kind of a mid-card guy, but Nick what are your thoughts on, on Larry Zabisco, what are your thoughts on what he just said?
0: Here's, here's what I think. I think that the best villains are the heroes of their own stories. And you're going to find out later on with what Zabisco does, he's definitely the villain in all this. But he's not some mustache-twirling James Bond takeover the world type villain. He's more like Sergeant Barnes from Platoon. He's more like Johnny Sack from The Sopranos. You know, He's a character that you can relate to. You can feel the emotion coming off of him. These are These are real emotions here. He's not just being evil because the script calls for it. The other thing, and this will sound a little strange, but I found myself very, very much relating to Larry Zabisco When I actually started uh, out of school, I went into a practice with an older doctor, and we very much had this mentor-pupil-type relationship that started out great, but it fell apart pretty quickly. And for many of the same reasons here, you know, I think he just kind of viewed me as and you know, this guy's going to come in and be my peer. I don't think so. From my end, I kind of felt, okay, I'm never going to get anywhere with this older dentist just kind of micromanaging me. And I just felt like I had to stake out and do my own thing. So I eventually, I, I didn't wear his ass out with a chair. <laughs> uh, but I not, yet. My, not yet. Not <laughs> yet. But I ended up putting in my two weeks notice, you know, uh, we parted ways and I started my own thing. But I, I felt very much like Zabisco felt here. You know, I'm never going to get anywhere under this guy's shadow. So I found this very, very relatable. And again, I found myself understanding where Zabisco was coming from.
1: At this point in the story arc, I feel the exact same way. By the way, as soon as someone says Johnny Sack, the first thing that goes through my head is, Ralph, Tony told you not to apologize. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to me, I I get where Larry's coming from. And what really, uh, to me, what made this interview great was like, oh yeah, you know, one of my, someone in my family introduces me and they, this is, this guy, he's a wrestler. He, Bruno trained him. He didn't even use my name. Steve, I mean, Steve, what were your thoughts on this?
2: Well this is the first time I've heard this too since it originally oh, wow. aired. Yeah I, I, it's been a long long time. I, I mean for for one thing uh, I can't believe they let them ramble on that long. It was very effective but I it mean was uh, long. It, it was like it was like an Oscar speech gone way too long. <laughs> uh, uh but uh but but yeah it was it was extremely effective. I mean uh, you know it's very funny that it, as far as how the WWF and other promotions have set up these important important angles like if you remember when uh, uh, Orndorff turned on Hogan, they had this little setup where they had a wrestle the Moon Dogs like a week or two before, and and they really kind of you know arced out this little storyline, and and you know years and years later, uh, mankind had a face to face interview with Jim Ross, and and mankind is really spilling his heart, and then he attacks Jim Ross, and those so were these, great. These really personal interviews where where a wrestler, whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. Really spills out their heart and really tries to come clean and really tells you what they're thinking. They always seem to be wildly effective. It 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 blows my mind now, years later, thinking why didn't they ever do this again? Why didn't they ever like take more time and put an angle together that would have multiple layers and have more to it than just the usual? Oh my God, he threw me through the bar- barbershop window. Was the worst thing ever happened to me?
1: Yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> now I have to go back and watch those Mankind interviews. Those, those were great. Someone like, come out and help Jim. <laughs> he, I mean, he felt it. It felt like he really didn't know that he did it. It was great. Yeah. All right, so the next week, I believe, Bruno has something to say. Once again, this is for review purposes only. This is not on Peacock, but we have it. So let's hear what Bruno has to say with me now ladies and gentlemen Bruno Sammartino and Bruno
3: I know you're in a a very tough position wrestler extraordinaire commentator friend of so many fans so many wrestlers but and I know it's tough for you to react uh, to what has happened as of late with Larry Zabisco but we have to put you on this spot I think the fans certainly are deserving of an explanation of how you feel again about the challenge that was issued by Larry Zabisco. and will you accept his challenge
7: will you face Larry Well, First of all Vince, let me tell you this okay you know I've had my neck broken, I've had my arm broken, I've had serious serious injuries but none of those injuries have hurt me as hurt as I feel right now and I feel equally bad that Larry feels hurt which I never knew before. I never knew that he had these feelings that he that he has expressed. I can't tell you how terrible I feel about about this whole thing because I love the guy like like a brother. I, I always tried my darnest to never keep holding back anything and everything that I could show him that would be beneficial to him in his career. He's been the rookie of the Year, the very first year as a pro. He's, he's respected by all wrestlers, the fans all love him. He's been all over the world and his promoters are always requesting to have his services again because he's such a great wrestler. I thought Larry had the world by by the, by the hand and I thought he was the happiest guy in the world That to find this out. I feel crushed, I feel hurt, I feel bad for him because he feels so sad. but now you ask me, will I accept the challenge? Vince, I think you know you know me a long time and I like to hope, I believe, all the fans that know me for a long time know that I've never, never refused a challenge from anyone. But Larry Zabisco, Vince, it's like somebody asking me, Bruno. How about signing a match with your younger brother and go out there and try to hurt him, try to beat him, try to make him... Seven. How in the world could, could anyone do that? I, I hope the fans... nobody says no... No, I, I couldn't do it. It just wouldn't be in my heart, there's no way. Well,
3: let me, let me say this, that there are, and I'm not one of them, I'm just stating stating in effect what some fans are going to say. Some fans are going to say, Bruno, and I think you've got to face this uh, question, they're going to say, Bruno, come on, are you afraid of Larry Zabisco? Uh, uh, is there a little inkling of cowardness in Bruno Sammartino? I think you're going to have to answer that question.
7: I hope not. I hope people won't think that way. And I hope they'll be sympathetic to my feelings in this situation. Those, I'll have to repeat, those who have known me for all the years I've been around, I've faced every opponent in the world that ever came my way. But now you're asking me to meet Larry Zabisco, I repeat, I love this man like I love my own brother, my younger brother. How could I have it in my heart? Nah, if they all feel that way, I'm sorry. But uh, there's no way. I just couldn't know it. It just isn't in to me to, to, to be able to go in the ring with Larry Zubisco. I can't can even imagine it. How do you feel Larry Zabisco will react to this, uh, this negative vote in effect uh, on your part? I really don't know. Maybe perhaps he won't be happy. I don't know because I, I, I can't, I can't even, I can, I, I don't know how to even answer that question. I just hope that he will be sympathetic enough to understand my feelings. I can understand his feeling in wanting me in there. Uh, I don't know. I'm so confused and, and hurt. I can't tell you. Thanks again.
3: Bruno San Martino, ladies and gentlemen, with his views, we shall return.
1: You know, one thing I wanted to get back to with the Larry Zbysko interview, I I failed to mention this. It's in my notes. You notice the pop that Larry Zbysko gets just bringing up Bruno Sammartino's name for the first time. So in a weird way, you can see where Larry was coming from. Nick, uh, once again, I think this is the first time you've you've heard this Bruno interview, you've heard this part of the storyline they're telling. What are your thoughts? My
0: thoughts are Bruno Sammartino Obviously has good intentions, but he's only making it worse. When he starts in with the, he's like my little brother. I can't possibly hurt him. It's it's everything that is irritating and irking Zabisco. So when you're hearing him say this, he, he's in a very, uh, he's not in a good spot. Because either way, he, he doesn't want to show that he's afraid of Zabisco. But on the same token, he also wants to let you know he's, he doesn't want to hurt him. And that's about the worst thing he could say here.
1: Uh, I am in complete agreement as soon as you say Bruno is making things worse, I mean that's kind of what I thought when I was 14 years old watching this for the first time. It's like you know, Bruno, your your matches ha- currently have a zero percent mortality rate. If you wrestle Larry Zabisco, I, I, I think he I think he'll make it. okay. Uh, Steve, have you heard this interview recently?
2: No, no. This is the first I've heard since I was, a, you know, a teenager watching it at home. Uh, but, but yeah, his response was good as far as just like adding more fuel, more, more mystery to this whole thing. Like, where is this going to go? I mean, you know, who should we root for? What is what is happening? But uh, I, I just wanted to add that that um, I think, it, you know, looking back on now, as far as history and everything, Larry was the one in, in real life. Larry was the one that suggested this feud to Bruno. And, and Bruno said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. But when Vince's father found out about this idea, he wasn't really too keen on it. But then when that, this idea got back to Bruno that McMahon, the older McMahon didn't care for it, Bruno really sculptured this whole feud and he put all the, all the steps into motion because even when he was champ, he could really do his own programs and really control everything. So I just want to give credit to Bruno for this masterpiece that we're evaluating right now.
1: I mean, and, you know, going beyond that, I mean, they they tell a great story coming in. I thought the match, they told a great story. I say the match, the television match. And then you go back and look at their matches that are available for Madison Square Garden and Philadelphia Spectrum, and they just do such a wonderful job storytelling the whole time. Uh, I mean, this, this dominated the spring and the summer of 1980. Uh, and so finally... So Larry Zabisco has challenged Bruno San Martino. He has asked for a match, and Bruno Sammartino has refused. Let's see what happens next. Once again, audio for review purposes only, and this is not available on Peacock, but let's check it out. Let's see what Larry Zabisco now has to say.
3: Larry is wait a minute. Excuse me for a moment. Larry Zabisco Let's go on here what he has to say. Larry, first of all, congratulations uh, on another victory. Uh, You polished off John Buford with quite authority, no doubt about that. But uh, you, you asked for this. You obviously have something to say, do you not?
6: I just have something to say, and uh, I came out here a couple weeks ago and I poured my guts out to the fans. I made a a statement of my own search and my own quest for self-recognition in my business. I made a challenge and a demand of Bruno. And uh, I heard Bruno's reply. Bruno refused to give me the opportunity I asked for. And I hope you people enjoyed my match today because as far as I'm concerned, if I can't have a chance to prove myself as me, this is the last match Larry Zbysko is going to wrestle. I can't exist. I am not going to exist in the business If I have to remain a shadow and a specter, I demanded something out of Bruno and he didn't feel he should do it. I can't make Bruno do it. I can't make anybody do anything, but I can do for me. And I have to know right now, I'm not going to wrestle again. I want Bruno to come out here and I want Bruno to say if he wants to wrestle me to my face or if he doesn't, whatever he wants. Uh,
3: you've heard what Larry Zabisco has said, and everyone waiting for your response to that.
7: It's true that uh, last week or two weeks, whatever it's been, I said that I would never wrestle Larry Zabisco. And I did mean it. However, however, I don't want it to be said that Larry's career may be ruined because of my refusal to go in a ring with him, number one. Number two, we've received so much mail from the fans saying that they want me to wrestle Zabisco. And all the, years, all the years I've been wrestling, the fans have known me never to run away from any opponent. And I surely will not run away from this particular bout, which I really don't have my heart into it. However, there has to be a compromise here. I, the, I will go into the ring with Larry under these conditions. I will go in there to give him the opportunity to prove to the fans that he's a better man than I, if that's what he wants. Okay. For myself... I, uh, I am not interested to go into that drink and defeat Larry Zabisco. So, what I will do is this I will accommodate the fans that they do want me to go in there. I will. I will accommodate.
3: You can hear the response here.
7: I will please, I will please Larry Zabisco into proving what he's been, what's been haunting him all this time, which I, I had no knowledge of. However, I will say this, if Larry wants to try and beat me, fine. I will do everything in my power to stop him from beating me. As far as him trying to out-wrestle me, he'll have to be better because I will do everything in my power to, 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 to keep my reputation at stake. But what I will not do... What I will not do is I'm not going to go in that ring and try to defeat Larry Zabisco because I could not find in my heart to apply a hold on him and say quit or I'll break your arm. Because I still regard Larry Zabisco I have the same love for him as I have for one of my brothers. And I do not find it in my heart to go in there and hurt Larry or try to defeat him. However, I will say this, that since Larry wanted this badly, he's going to have to show the fans and everybody in himself that he is the better man because I will give nothing in there.
3: All right. The match is made. But Larry, would like
6: to get your response then. All I can say is I cannot ask for anything else. That's all. I can't wait. I'm very happy. That's what I wanted. We'll see next week. All right. So the match made. Larry Zabesco will face
3: Bruno San Martino next week.
6: I just want to make one more statement. I, I came out and I asked a favor and I got it. I just want to make sure... That everybody understands I don't hate the man. I want the match on TV so everybody can see it. And it's all I have to say.
1: Alright, thank you both. We shall return in just a moment. Okay, couple of things. Number one, I, I know at least one of you out there listening is saying, John, I listen to this podcast to hear you and Steve talk with your guests, not to listen to endless audio. It is historic stuff, and I just want, you know, whatever what we're recommending you watch on Peacock. This way the match doesn't exist in a vacuum. I promise there's one more audio bit, and it's coming towards the end, and that's it. I blame the WWF for letting these segments go long. Now, Dr. Nick, your thoughts on what you just heard.
0: This entire feud boils down to one word, and that's respect. And Larry didn't feel like he was getting it from Bruno. Larry wanted it from the fans. He didn't feel like he was getting it from the fans. Larry eventually shows none of it toward Bruno with what we'll see later. And at the end of the day, both Larry and Bruno vow to beat beat it into one another. So it all boils down to respect. And to me, this is just pro wrestling at its most basic, you know. We talk about title reigns as fans, and we talk about it almost like they're real, you know, but the title is just a prop, you know, at the end of the day, the title is just a prop. And here they didn't even need that. It's nothing more than two men that are fighting for respect. And that's pro wrestling broken down to its most basic elements. And listen, I'm a pro wrestling fan of, I like all of it. I like the green mist. I like the Jake Roberts biting Randy Savage with the snake angle, you know, the undertaker, the NWO, all that stuff. All that stuff is great. But you know what else is great is a simple story that makes sense, that's relatable, and that's about something that we all want. I mean, who doesn't want respect?
1: That is an excellent breakdown. Steve, I I, before I hand it over to you, one thing I noticed for the first time listening to that is Larry Zbysko was like, okay, well, I've wrestled my last match. I hope you've all enjoyed it. And Larry gets a little bit of a Bronx cheer from the fans. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you know then i notice that larry zabisco he's being a little bit heelish here we we don't see it but larry does not offer a handshake he does not say thank you he's just like okay i got what i wanted that, that's it like he, he's not being terribly gracious even though i i still have some sympathy for him i get where he's coming from like you know is, is wrestling Bruno the only way you're going to get what you're looking for?
2: Yeah. Yeah. John, I, th- I think he, he comes off like a hostage negotiator. He, he's, uh, he's just de- so desperate to hear Bruno say, yes, I'll have this match with you. He's just so desperate to hear those words. But, uh, like, like Nick was saying, this is just, uh, the ultimate, uh, soap opera type storyline that, uh, sucked in the entire East coast. And you know, what, what was so interesting too was, you know, we're so used to the WWWF formula of, okay, they have a match at the garden and then they have a rematch and then maybe a cage match. But what was so fascinating about this is after this TV match, they had a match at the garden and then maybe had a rematch two or three months later. And then there was no, there was no resolution of this match. So there's just, you know, we need to have a resolution of this match. And then they decided, Hey, let's do it at Shea Stadium. And of course the rest is history.
1: Yes. I mean, it, Nick, you know, I mean, I agree with Nick, you know, what both guys or is is looking for. He's just looking for a little bit of respect. Maybe he's going, now he's arm twisting a little bit. Like, hey, Bruno, I'll retire if you don't give me what I want. He's very desperate there. Yeah. So now we get to the match. Bruno Sammartino versus Larry Zabisco on TV. This is the biggest TV match I, you know, up, until, up until this point that I had ever seen. They, they really do a good job building it up. I mean, Vince McMahon is talking about uh, he's getting telegrams. <laughs> Remember those? Wishing both guys good luck. It's kind of an even match. Larry gets polite applause coming in, but Bruno gets a thunderous ovation. Nick, had you ever seen the match before I invited you to do this show.
0: I've seen it a few times, yeah.
1: Okay. Give give us your thoughts on the whole back and forth.
0: Well, here's what I'll tell you. Here's what's interesting about it is if you look at the actual wrestling, they're not doing anything special. It's some chain wrestling, some headlocks, some hammer locks, some shoulder tackles, a couple of body slams, but it all means something. And the other interesting thing is they're both more or less kind of doing the same moves and holds but they're doing them completely differently. Bruno is doing this match like a guy in an exhibition that's, like you said earlier, not trying to hurt Larry. It's almost a little bit dismissive. He, he, again, you almost, you could see Larry's frustration as he goes on because Larry is doing all these things like this is the match of his life and everything's on the line. So these two guys are just on completely different wavelengths. Bruno's looking at it like a friendly ex- exhibition. And Zabisco is looking at this like, this is his livelihood, and this is the only thing that matters. And they both wrestle just like that.
1: My thought is, and I've expressed this on the show before, that Larry Zabisco, I, I, I don't blame him for being insulted. I do not. I mean, Bruno, it, it's been spelled out for, for Bruno Martino. This is Larry Zabisco's. It, it's beyond his Super Bowl. It is life or death for him. And Bruno is treating and, and, Bruno flat, flat out bait is babying Larry Zabisco. You know, he puts him in a hold. Larry can't get out. Bruno lets him go. Uh, and he did this three or four times during the match. You know, Larry is body slamming Bruno with no regard for his safety, just like he would against Johnny Valiant or Nikolai Volkov. And Bruno won't do anything to even attempt to harm. Larry Zabisco a little bit and Steve I mean what were your thoughts on the whole thing like I, my my take was I didn't blame Larry for getting pissed
2: well um, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in my 16 uh, year old body watching it back in the day 15 maybe and uh, you know you're watching the match and and you know you, you're just caught up in it you you don't know who's going to win you don't know what's going to happen but when we get to that final final moment. I was, I guess as a viewer at home, I was like the people in the crowd, because you're not going to hear like lots of booze. It was more like stunned silence. Like, what did we just see? What happened? You know, so that's how I felt as a viewer. I
1: was just stunned watching it. Yeah. Uh, Bruno Sammartino had Larry Zabisco trapped in a bear hug. You know, and that, that was it. If Bruno had you in the bear hug, you're in trouble. And he just let Larry go. And I was like, Bruno, you have never killed anyone with a bear hug. Larry knows how to submit, you know, what you're doing intentionally or not. You're embarrassing him. Like, I if I'm Larry Zabisco, I am a whole lot less embarrassed just submitting to a bear hug than I am having the guy let me go. I mean, I, I just can't blame him. Well, we did hear in
2: these interviews before Bruno did say he wasn't going to try to. You know, you he didn't say I'm not gonna use a finishing hole, but he said he wasn't gonna try to, you know, defeat him or hurt him. Uh he basically said this is what's gonna happen in the match, so I guess he was consistent at least.
1: And that is an excellent point, and that's Bruno's side of the story, in that he told Larry Zabisco coming in exactly what to expect. I'm not going to try to hurt you, I'm not going to try to make you submit. You know, I will defend myself. I won't just let you beat me. So That's the other side of the coin that Larry, you know, he agreed to that. And as we all know, it happened 43 years ago. Uh, Larry Zabisco winds up getting knocked out of the ring by accident. Bruno opens the ropes to let him back in, and Larry Zabisco just lets him have it. And he's kicking Bruno, punching him, stomping on him. And then he has not had enough. Larry Zabisco goes outside the ring, gets a wooden folding chair, hits Bruno in the head twice with it. Bruno gets up the second time. And he's enraged. Like Bruno is shaking. His hands are shaking and Larry Zabisco knocks him out for that third chair shot and down goes Bruno. And we have our second uh, wrestler of the hour taken out on a stretcher rather haphazardly. Uh, you can't mention this without saying that y- yes, Bruno, I saw you blade. <laughs> I saw it back in 1980. Your your thoughts, Nick, on you know what Larry Zbysko actually did to Bruno Martino. Like, here we're at the end, and everyone's just stunned at what Larry Zbysko did.
0: I have a few thoughts on that. The first one is you got to give it up for Bruno. That was an incredible sell job on that last chair shot. Because you know, if you see someone get knocked out in a fight, they don't take a bump off of a punch. You know what I mean? The way he goes down, he goes down like a guy that really got knocked out. In fact, his head, if you watch it, his head bounces off the mat. Yes. And he ends up just laying there in a prone position on his stomach. You know, it looks a lot less like a wrestling bump, and it looks like this guy really got knocked out. The other thing is, and this sounds like a minor detail, but this is something that the WWF and then later, even to this day, the WWE has always done right. They're always able to find that one or two fans in the crowd just to give that perfect reaction. And if you watch this right after Zabisco lays them out, they show these two older ladies in the crowd and they're perfect. (laughs) Because you look at them and they look, again, they're not hooting and hollering and screaming. They're stunned. They look stunned. And when you hear these stories about, you know, the fans when Bruno got hurt, it felt like, you know, a family member getting hurt and it sounds kind of silly. But when you see it on the screen, I mean, that's how these two ladies reacted. It looked like they saw a family member get knocked out. They looked stunned.
1: They, they looked like they just saw someone drive through a, a stop sign and crash into a truck. I mean, like that, oh, my God, what did I just see look on their face? It, it really was a, a, a good prop. I mean, Steve, your, your thoughts on the whole thing. Well, let me throw mine in. At this point, you know, now no, no more sympathy for Larry Zabisco. I get why he's upset, but I mean, you know, almost killing Bruno with a wooden chair goes a little bit too far.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the pool of blood was just so, uh, visceral and so, uh, shocking. Uh, a, a real pool of blood. I mean, it was just, I mean, like an inch or two of blood. You saw it on the mat and that uh uh was it the nine lives of Vince McMahon show there was a brief snippet on that show of uh Dr. Zahorian examining uh, Bruno after this bloodbath by the way it's very interesting that that's on there but but I will say that never in my wildest dreams watching this i mean yeah sure i probably figured out my god this is going to be the beginning of a feud between Bruno and Larry but never in my wildest dreams did i imagine that the, the few would would go on for months on end, and it would culminate with the Shea Stadium show, which at the time was the record breaker. It set all new records. Uh, I think the gate was like under six hundred thousand dollars, but was the biggest gate in wrestling at that time. Uh, Thirty six thousand fans, maybe the biggest attendance at that time, and it, it just it just changed everything. So, uh, what we're talking about is definitely wrestling
1: history. It is. And one thing, you know, I don't have this audio, um, but Bruno San Martino would, would get on TV and talk about how he spent time away from his family, away from his two sons, away from his wife in order to train this Larry Zabisco and look what he has done. And then Bruno, you know, he returns to his role as color commentator. But when Larry Zabisco was on TV wrestling, Bruno would go silent. He would just be like, nope, I have nothing to say. And it, it made the thing feel that much more real.
2: Yeah, you, you really believed in this feud. It, it was really different than the regular wrestling angles that we had seen, uh, where, yeah, we, we were vested in them, and we were definitely caught up, and we, did, we definitely wanted to go to the, see them live and see them wrestle. But this was so personal. You really felt it uh, much more... Uh, Internally and and personally.
1: I I completely agree. So we have, after that, we have more matches. Incredibly. And, but now, okay, so the next match, Tony Atlas against Johnny Rods. And now I see why we have that next match because we have that, that visual. of the referees cleaning up that pool of blood with white towels, and you see the towels are soaked with Bruno San Martino's blood. I mean, it was it was quite the visual. Uh, Nick, any thoughts from you?
0: Yes, it, it, I'm glad you mentioned that, because when I'm first watching this, through, because I watched this a few times in, in preparation for this, but when I'm watching the whole show through, I'm watching this, and this is strange. Why is this in the middle of the show? Shouldn't this be at the end? Because, again, that's what I'm used to. you know. And I think if this angle were done nowadays, that's how they would do it. It would be a a cliffhanger at the end of the show. What's going to happen next week? But here's the thing. This is a much, much better way of doing it. Because, like you said, not only do you have that visual of them cleaning the pool of blood up out from the corner of the ring, you also get to see the audience. They're kind of just shocked for the rest of the show. And the next two matches, I mean, anything that happens in the ring is more or less irrelevant. But you get the crowd reaction to it. And I think the story deserved that because I one thing that's very, very easy to lose sight of is even though all these moving parts kind of happened fairly quickly, this mentor-pupil relationship, this wasn't like a, a three-month relationship or a six-month angle or a two-year angle. This, you know, Bruno broke him in. This was seven years, I believe, in the making, was it not?
1: Exactly seven years.
0: Mm -hmm. exactly
2: seven years so again to do it like a cheap cliffhanger
0: tune in next week i think they gave it the uh the respect and just the attention to detail that this angle deserved
1: it it, it, the way they did it now today or even you know coming in i'm like all right they you know the, the last thing we should see is bruno sammartino on his way back to the dressing room on a stretcher but wait a minute that's how things happen in a perfect world where everything is planned. The way they did it made it seem unplanned. Like no one knew this was going to happen, and we've got two more matches uh, to go. Steve, what, what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, when uh, when Bruno was carried off and Tony Altamore was one of the referees, that sloppily carried him off on the stretcher. I think you, you get to see a little bit of monsoon on the sidelines uh, standing there because he was directing the TV at the time. It was so uh so in the moment and so shocking. I mean, like Nick said, I mean, you're you're just watching this these other matches, the Bobby Duncombe squash match, the Tony Atlas squash match, and you're watching the fans who are all numb and uh you just you're just wondering like where do we go from here? I mean, you've just seen an assassination attempt, you know, where where do we go from here? <laughs>
1: Yeah. And, you know, like you said, a, a hush had fallen over the crowd for the last two matches. And, you know, it, it just made the whole the, the gravity of the whole thing sink in. Now, getting off the Bruno Zabisco thing for a minute, Tony Atlas, Steve, is is custom made for the World Wrestling Federation. A big bodybuilder with a lot of charisma, maybe not much in the ring, but he's got his strong points.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, one thing that was great about the old WWF, uh, with the extra W, I mean, they always had great stars from all over the world and different cultures. And, uh, you know, they, they weren't afraid to push black wrestlers. I mean, Bobo Brazil had been a huge star, which is is really forgotten now. He was a huge star for the WWWF back in the sixties and through parts of the seventies. Now Bobo was pretty much almost retired by now. He would come back for little sporadic runs. But Tony Atlas was really going to be his replacement, you know, a star for the people to root for and had a phenomenal body. And he wasn't wasn't really a great wrestler, but he definitely had to look for the WWF uh, where bodies and just uh, larger than life personas were, were, were definitely looked upon in uh, a very positive nature.
1: Yeah, Bobo Brazil had been gone since the beginning, or at least off TV, since the beginning of 1977. And we had no uh, baby faces as persons of color who got pushed in the WWF. Yeah, Ernie Ladd came back in 78. But he's a bad guy, and that's something that I, I just re- looked at at the time being like, okay, you know, there are – uh, black people in every other sport except WWF wrestling. But uh, any thoughts, Nick, on the you know, the Tony Atlas versus Johnny Rods match itself, or any thoughts on either competitor?
0: You know, I just think Johnny Rods was going about this thing all wrong. You know, because if you watch that match back, half of his offense is him kicking and stomping Tony Atlas in the head. You know, and <laughs> I don't know. I've seen Tony Atlas. Tony Atlas put out some videos that suggest to me I think Johnny Rods may have just been threatening him with a good time there. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the other thing I'll say, and this is going to sound kind of silly, but I remember as a kid, you know, my, my family, they tend to not be wrestling fans, and all I heard was fake, the stuff's phony, scripted, but in my mind, I thought, you know, I'm going to make my own decision on this, so I would kind of watch this stuff a little bit analytically, and of all things, the thing that kind of got me as a kid, and I was probably eight or nine, to realize, hey, this stuff is scripted, were the headbutts. Because I I watched a lot of boxing with my dad. And if you ever watch a fight where someone just takes an accidental headbutt, I mean, that thing just opens a huge gash on the eye and they stop the fight half the time. So when you see that and then you see these guys doing these diving, jumping, falling, flopping headbutts, and it doesn't leave a scratch, for whatever reason, that of all things was what told me, okay, I think this is uh, scripted. All that said, never made a difference to me. (laughs)
1: <laughs> no, same here. I mean, you know, if you're if you're a wrestling fan, especially from that era, you get it. To you know, you just understand and you're you're either drawn to it or you're not. Bobby Duncan against Steve King. We talked a little bit about Steve King earlier. Uh, Bobby Duncombe is still in the middle of a big push in the WWF. He had already gotten two matches at Madison Square Garden against Bob Backlund at the end of 1979, but he is still main eventing in Boston, in Philadelphia, in Baltimore, et cetera, against Bob Backlund. I felt like this match this was one of too many matches. This match should have been on earlier in the card, and we should have just gone home after Tony Atlas and Johnny Rods. I mean, the the air has been sucked out of the building. But, Steve, any, any thoughts on on Bobby Duncombe? Well, Bobby Duncombe had
2: made his name in the Federation back in 74. He had this is really, they called it in the wrestling magazines, bloodbath at the garden match at MSG against Bruno, and Bruno defeated him in the rematch. And Bruno has said in in the years subsequent that uh, Bobby Duncombe was probably his maybe one of his most underrated opponents. They really liked wrestling with each other. And he became a real AWA mainstay to me with Blackjack Lanza a lot. So he had a really uh, strong career. I know in the Backlund book, Backlund said that uh, Bobby Duncombe's knees were really uh, failing him at the time. But I think he also said in the book that uh, Bobby Duncombe's wife was quite ill around this time. And it wasn't like he could just quit wrestling. He needed to make the big income that he was making in New York. So even though he was you know, really maybe not up to speed like he used to be, they were more than happy to give him some main events to make the money that he needed to uh, get through a difficult time. So uh, the McMahons, uh, they definitely, uh, at least in that
1: time, were a first-class outfit. I, I was really surprised they they took this long to bring Bobby Duncan back because he was a big star in the WWF seventy four and seventy five. But like you said, I mean, what Bruno Sammartino actually said about Bobby Duncan was that Bobby was the best, the best athlete he had ever been in the ring with. And I'm like, wait, you know, doing an inventory of some of the guys Bruno has wrestled, uh, both in the United States and Japan, and that that's a hell of a compliment, man. But I saw Bobby Duncan in 1987. He was wrestling in Indy, in New Jersey, and the poor guy could barely move. So we we know his his knee issues have really Kicked in here. Nick, how, how familiar were you with Bobby Duncan coming in and, and what did you think of him in this match?
0: You know, I wasn't really too familiar with him, but I'm kind of with you. It, it didn't really make too much sense to put this match on at the very end. I think you could have had just one more match for, you know, the, the visual of the blood in the corner and the crowd, you know, kind of just being deflated. I think this was one match too many. That said, I mean, he looks, he wrestles like he looks. He looks like a big, tough, Texan type guy that's just gonna squash you. And he kind of wrestles that way. That bulldog he does, that looked pretty legit. But yeah, I just felt like this match, you know, didn't even need, need to be here, or it could have maybe been a little bit earlier on the card before the, the Bruno Larry.
1: Yeah, Bruno, I mean, you know, I'm thinking about what I said about uh, Duncombe. I mean, you know, thinking about the, the guys, you know, Bruno was comparing him to and then again, Bobby Duncan, uh legit played football at the University of Texas, so you know how good you have to be to do something like that. But yeah, he was, for the most part, he was a one and done challenger against Bob Backlund. Um, I thought his match 12, 1979 against Bob Backlund at Madison Square Garden was terrible. I know some of you <laughs> might not have been expecting me to say that, but it was, it was a bad match. Just Bob had good matches and Bob had bad matches. And that was one of them. All right. We're leaving the February 2nd, 1980 or a championship wrestling show, but we have one more piece of audio just to kind of wrap things up. And here's what Larry Zabisco had to say two weeks after he put the chair to Bruno San Martino.
3: Let me at the moment now, ladies and gentlemen. Larry Zabisco. Hey, Bruno isn't coming,
6: is he? Everybody here wants Bruno. Bruno isn't coming out, is he?
7: All right, look.
3: Larry Zabisco, you, you have absolutely destroyed the faith that so many wrestling fans have placed in you. It seems to me that you've done such an injustice to so many, many fans who really looked up
6: to you. The fans don't know the truth and I can see where the fans are coming from. I can see where Bruno is coming from but if everybody looks around when they're screaming we want Bruno we don't see Bruno coming, do we? And I'll tell you why we don't see Bruno coming because Bruno found out he couldn't embarrass me in this ring Bruno couldn't use me anymore what to keep his you? name going. He used me. Don't lip off to me. He used me as his protege, and it kept his name alive. We used to train together for years, and unbeknownst to everybody here, he could never beat me when we trained together, and that's why he used this match as an excuse. i wait. i wait. Please, don't go away. let wait. Look at it.
3: All right, now let's talk about the match that you had with San Martino on television.
6: Yeah, let's talk about it. All right? I challenge Bruno to a scientific wrestling match. Bruno says, oh my God, am I shocked. He is so shocked he can't believe it. Let me tell you why he's so, so shocked. Because Bruno doesn't want to come on TV and let everybody know that he is not the living legend of wrestling, that he never beat Larry's Nabisco in practice, that I've got a name I can carry on for myself. Better than Bruno San Martino ever made his damn name. Okay, okay, I'm talking here, I'm talking here. Everybody thinks they're so smart. Well, you ask yourself, how come Bruno San Martino agreed to the type of match he did? How come he wouldn't keep a hold on me? Because he knows I can break out of every single hold he put on me. There is not a hold a man can put on me that I can break out of. I can break out of them all. A Bruno Bell tried to embarrass me in the ring by pretending that he was letting me go. He let me go and broke the hole because he didn't want everybody out in television land to see me get out of it for my own self.
3: All right. assuming, Assuming that we accept what you say... What then do you have to say for yourself for the conduct that you used and the actions that you showed here using the chair
6: that you used? How do you explain that? I want to tell you something. Bruno used me. I found it out. You people are ignorant and you don't know, and who cares anyway? But I know what he was doing. Nobody comes in this ring and humiliates me and laughs at me and tries to make me look like a complete fool. And when I picked up that chair, that was my way of telling Bruno... Nobody does that to me, and if everybody here wants to know the truth, when I hit him with the chair, that was the happiest moment of my life, everybody, because now I am Larry Zabisco, and everybody knows it, and what you people think, I could care less. Bruno knows the truth, and I know the truth.
3: Here's a man. How could you possibly say that? Here's a man, by his own words, who loved you like a brother.
6: Yeah, he loves me like a brother, and the next breath he's humiliating me in the ring. You think I couldn't have put Bruno in a hold and let him go like a big joke? I could have done the same thing to him. He's the one that did it to me, and he's the one that asked for it. You people don't know what you're talking about, so why don't you just shut up and let someone in the business tell you what the hell's going on? You appear to be a very uptight
3: wrestler. You obviously do not have the respect of the fans any longer, Larry Zabisco. I would think that certainly that would be on your mind as well.
6: Yeah, well, you know what? I've learned a long time ago that for the last seven years I ran into the Iranian people, screamed and yelled, and I signed, autographed, and kissed their slobbering little babies, and they thought it was great. And to tell you the truth, I really didn't mind. But I came over here for a match with Bruno. And as far as I'm concerned, he let me down, and the people that are all watching wrestling let me down, too. And I don't need them, I don't need Bruno, I don't need anybody. So what happens in the future? Hey, in the future, my future is that I have proved myself on television. They carried Bruno out. He couldn't stop me. He couldn't stop me scientifically. That's why he used his crummy little gimmick matchup, releasing all the holes like he's just a nice guy. And I'm using mine now. My future is made. Anybody wants to wrestle Larry Spisco, that's fine with me. Right. I wrestle scientific all the time. It's tough for
1: the time. Thank you very much, Larry Spisco. Okay, once again, anytime we use audio here on Stick to Wrestling, it is for review purposes only. And while I'm speaking, Don't Lip Off to Me is definitely going to be the name of this episode. Vince McMahon in total Howard Cosell mode once again. Um, one of my favorite things about wrestling, Nick, is uh, you can turn into a completely different person overnight, just as Larry Zabisco has in two weeks.
0: Yes, but there's enough meat on the bone here that you can work with it. And it kind of seems like a real heel turn. It's not a sudden thing out of nowhere. And, again, you can understand some of where he's coming from. Did Bruno try to humiliate him? Not necessarily. He really wasn't giving him a whole lot of respect out there. So he takes the truth, and then he stretches it and distorts it and turns it into his own warped version. And that is a much more interesting villain. I'll take a villain like that any day over, again, someone that's just evil because the script calls for it. I think this is a great heel promo because he starts it up with telling the audience, hey, you know, That guy you really, really want to see, he's not here. I took him from you and I'm going to take his name while I'm at it. He's the next Uh, living legend.
1: I mean, I, 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 I agree with you 100%. I thought Larry Zabisco's persona was fantastic here. Um, you know, that he just, he, it's almost like he got pushed into going to the other side and he just said, you know what? I'm going to embrace it. I mean here he is talking out of both sides of his mouth. Yeah, I could have gotten out of the hold, but Bruno was trying to humiliate me. Steve, your thoughts on on this interview?
2: He he is so extremely effective as a heel. I mean, it's like the very best of Roddy Piper, it's like uh, MJF today. I mean, this is a guy that people just want to k- kill and just 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 see him get run over by a car and uh <laughs> It, it, but it's like lightning in a bottle. I mean, he's kind of like Super Joe Charbonneau. He's like a – he would never hit these heights again. This this would only last really just, you know, a bunch of months this year. He'd milk the rest of his career off of the, the Bruno feud and the feud with Blackwinkle and Wahoo. And But, you know, the, the future of Larry Zbysko is always going to be about 1980 and what happened. And, and in, in a way, it's a shame because he could really wrestle well. He was a good wrestler, a great talker. But because his body was like a 70s wrestler body, uh, he got lost in the shuffle and nobody wanted to push a, a real wrestler anymore. They were more interested with anabolic warrior and uh, guys that looked like him.
1: Yeah, Larry, I mean, you know, Larry Zobisco, he had some moments in the AWA, in WCW uh, with JCP. But really, this was Larry Zobisco, I mean, nothing in his career uh, compared to that. Larry has claimed that uh, the WWF blackballed him after he refused to go out at Chase Stadium uh, until he got more money. That claim to me is dubious, even though he never wrestled for the WWF after this tour. I say that because they booked him in main events at the Philadelphia Spectrum against Bob Backlund in October and November of 1980. So that's a heck of a way to blackball a guy. But I I just Steve, I just never I, I always took that story with a very large grain of salt. Well, the thing that Larry has
2: said is that, that, you know, after the Bruno feud was over and he was, say, wrestling Pedro Morales, the fact that that Bruno had never pinned Larry in all those matches that they had, he didn't want to have, say, Pedro pin him or maybe a lesser wrestler pin him because Bruno never pinned him. And and his excuse was, well, that's going to make Bruno look bad. And so he really tried to have the promotion over a barrel and, and it just kind of blew up in his face. And I, I think he kind of got blackballed for a little bit. I mean, he ended up in Georgia a couple of years later, and his career eventually found its way. But um, I think it's very interesting about Bruno's story, because Bruno had held the WWF world title for most of the 60s, for more than half of the 70s. And after all of that and all that goodwill that Bruno put forward and having his neck broken and, and other things, he uh, gives them the biggest show in the history of the Federation, And then they find a way to screw him on the payoff. And that led to a lawsuit, and that's what led to him coming back as an announcer. He got a six-figure deal to come back as an announcer in '84, and his son David could come back with him. So it's a very interesting story that this 1980 plays in all of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, Nick, uh, Steve, thank you for being on. We've we've done a, a, an extra long episode. I, I feel like I can talk to, you, uh, hang out with both of you guys, and talk to you all day. Thank both of you very much, Nick. Thank you for for coming back after I believe eight or nine months.
0: I'll be back anytime you want me, man. I had a great time. This was very enjoyable, and uh, like I said earlier, my parents are going to have another wrestling podcast to listen to do so.
1: <laughs> yeah, hey, almost, almost a two-hour wrestling podcast. Steve, I'm, I'm glad we were able to reunite this week, and hopefully we'll be able to do it again next week.
2: Oh, great job, uh, John, and, and uh, thank you, Nick, and uh, Lou, great job as always.
1: All right. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this uh forum, if you will. I want to thank Lou for doing all of the great work he does. Lou Kippelman is the Bobby Gritch of Pro Wrestling Producers. He is so underrated and his work it just does not get enough credit. And we actually had a Joe Charbonneau reference on <laughs> Stick to Wrestling finally. <laughs> after almost 250 episodes. Uh, we'll see all of you next week, and this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.